0: Welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies, and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard. I'm director of ECFR. And this week, I am talking to a very special guest, Alexander Stubb, the former prime minister, foreign minister, finance minister of Finland, who's currently a member of parliament uh, in his home country, as well as an Ironman. And we are going to be discussing the idea of flexible integration of Europe. The 27 leaders minus Britain of the European Union are due to make a declaration at a summit in Rome later this month, which marks the 60th anniversary of the European Union, in which they'll set out a post-Brexit roadmap. And Angela Merkel has dropped a heavy hint that that declaration will set out a plan not just for uh, one Europe, but for several Europes, a Europe of two speeds. Which is also an idea which has been endorsed by some of the founding members of the European Union. My guest today is not just somebody who has sat in many of the council meetings of these different types of Europes over the years, talking about the Euro crisis, about foreign policy and about the future direction of the European Union. He's also somebody who actually is a, an institutional geek, I suppose I could call you, Alex, um, and has done more to think about flexible integration probably than, than anyone. So, what does it actually mean? Well, flexible integration
1: means many things and quite often different things to different people. But you can basically categorize it into two broad concepts. One is called core Europe, and that is something that usually happens outside the EU treaty, uh, hasn't been institutionalized at all. And the other one is called enhanced cooperation, which was actually put into the treaty with a whole bunch of caveats and rules and regulations in the Amsterdam Treaty and then later touched upon in the Nice Treaties and Lisbon Treaties. But the bottom line is that flexible integration means that not everyone needs to do everything at the same time. We are scattered with examples of flexibility throughout the history of European integration, the two prime examples obviously being the Schengen Agreement which is outside but has been brought inside the treaty. And
0: the other example is the euro, which is inside the treaty. And there are other elements and sub-flexible um, uh, arrangements within those things. One um, thing which um, not many readers will be familiar with, but which was meant to be very important, was the, the Treaty of Prüm, which is uh, another obscure city uh, <laughs> which goes yeah. inside Schengen. Um, which is on uh, cooperation around, I think that's around policing and intelligence sharing and and internal security.
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's one example as well. And that actually was linked to asylum as well. So the bottom line is that, you know, flexible integration is nothing new. Um, I mean, already in the 1980s, an academic by the name of Christian Ehlers or Ehlerman uh, was able to identify about 200 different directives and regulations with different kinds of transition periods etc cetera, etc cetera. but the big idea seems to be just sort of thrown around a little bit too easy uh in europe and 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 the idea that okay let's forge ahead and form a core europe that that will deepen integration it, it simply is a thing that people use a little bit as a threat like a nuclear threat but at
0: the end of the day you don't end up using it And do you think that we are entering a different era? Because in the past, that was certainly the case that people talked about a Europe of different speeds because there was an understanding that everybody would ultimately reach the same destination, but some people could get there faster than others. And that certainly was the thinking behind the Euro, um, behind the Schengen area, whereas now we seem to be in a situation where some people are uh, indicating that they don't want to end up going to the destination at all. Some people seem to want a, a ever looser Europe rather than ever tighter Europe. Um, Britain's leaving. How does that change the dynamics for, for flexible integration? Well, there's one
1: theoretical answer and one practical answer. And the theoretical answer comes pretty much from my background. I, I, I am indeed, as you said, an institutional geek or nerd. I wrote my PhD on flexible integration. And the the academic answer is that there's three forms of of flexibility. One is something we call multi-speed, and that's what you were referring to, that you have the same target, but you approach that target uh, at a different pace. You know, transition uh, clauses, for instance, when you join the European Union is one example. So you have the same goal, the same vision. Number two is something called variable geometry. And that gets a little bit more complicated because there you don't necessarily have the same target. So there were countries that were left and did, didn't did want to join the Schengen Agreement, or there there are countries that didn't want to join the euro. So the target is not the same, but you allow some member states to, to forge ahead. And then the final example, the third one is, is a la carte. And that's a little bit like the pick and choose. You know, you, you sort of choose the policy areas where you are. And all of these three things are theoretically present. Now, the less theoretical answer is that you usually get this type of a debate on flexibility, differentiation, or core Europe when one of five things is on the table. And the five things are, number one, the euro or the common currency, Uh, number two, uh, foreign and security policy, number three, asylum or justice and home affairs, Uh, number four, um, problematic or, or recalcitrant um, member states in 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 one way um, or another so you know you, you get all of these things and they are all happening right now and that's why you're going to see some language in the room so, so what's
0: number five so one was the the euro two was justice and home affairs, it was foreign policy three was justice and home affairs four was recalcitrant countries
1: yeah. And now, of course, my mind completely
0: escapes and I forget what the fifth one is, but I promise you, it'll come back to me. Could we go through some of these things? Because I think, it, um, you know, it becomes more interesting if we, well, maybe not more interesting, but but even more uh, more pressing uh, when we move from the theoretical to the practical. So what do you think um, flexible integration will mean in some of these different areas? If we take the euro for, start, uh, for starters, I mean, Finland's a country that's in the euro. You were in fact, heavily involved in the, the most difficult parts of the Greek crisis. What do you think the the flexible integration means for, for the euro? Sure. But before that, I remember the fifth one, and
1: that's enlargement. So anytime we talk about enlargement, uh, you know, the idea of flexibility comes up because the more member states you get, the more unlikely it is to have a common vision. Well, on the euro, uh, I mean, I, I think that's probably the most important question. There have been attempts to move ahead inside the euro in one particular area, and that was the financial transaction tax, the FTT. Uh, And the basic thinking was that, okay, we're in the euro. We have the common currency. We need a little bit more money for the euro budget. What do we do? Let's go for an FTT. Uh, And only a number of member states did that. But to be quite honest, the idea simply hasn't worked. So it was, you know, born Dead, and I think we're seeing the slow burial of it. Then you know you could think about: okay, will the Euro countries have their own budget? Well, nowadays when you look at public spending and everyone's uh, money is pretty tight, fiscal policies are stringent, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, so I don't think it's going to happen there either. So I think you know it's going to be very difficult to move ahead uh, with any kind of major flexibility inside the euro area the euro is flexible as it stands uh by definition because what 18 member states are part of it uh, uh out of uh, 28 soon to be 27
0: yeah but there is also a a big question about the relationship between the eurozone and the non-eurozone i mean that is something which david cameron was trying to resolve in his renegotiation attempt uh but which has obviously been killed now after the British referendum with Britain trying to leave. Do do you think that more work needs to be done? Because it's a slightly messy arrangement where the Eurozone is is using some institutions designed for the whole European Union and they're they're being lent to it. And some of its arrangements are being done outside of the treaties completely, um which means that they're not subject to the European Court of Justice or to parliamentary scrutiny. And some people think that's created a a big uh, democratic deficit.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's not so much an issue of flexibility as such, as it is about political power and political influence. Uh, Having sat in on the Eurogroup meetings and having been on the brink uh, at crossroads with, for instance, Greece, I mean, I fully understand the frustrations of those countries that are not in the Eurozone, because every decision that we make in the Eurogroup has then an impact in one way or another uh, in ECOFIN where all the finance ministers sit. So, for instance, if Greece had been smoked out of the euro, it would have surely affected in one way or another the financial markets, uh, say, uh, in the United Kingdom. Uh, I think transparency is good, but at the same time, we're in a situation whereby, you know, with responsibility and commitment, Uh, you want to be sure that you are the one taking the decisions. And that's why to to let in non-Euro countries on the decision-making of the Euro is out of the question. But increased transparency, sure, I think that's important.
0: And do you think that you need to have um, arrangements about who owns the European Union, who owns the European Commission, who owns um, other kinds of institutions?
1: No, I think that's something that has been fairly well-defined already uh, in the treaties. And, and this is probably the slightly baffling thing about this whole debate on flexibility. Again, what, because all the five things are on the agenda right now, it's no surprise that, that, that we're discussing this. And of course, the biggest issue here is is Brexit and the idea that some member states can forge ahead. But you see, in the Amsterdam Treaty and in the Nice Treaties, we already put a very clear Uh, rules and regulations on enhanced cooperation you know has to be open to everyone Uh, it should not damage the internal market everyone should follow uh, the jurisprudence of the European Union and the European courts etc etc so I think the rules and regulations and conditions are already there uh, and that's why the whole idea of saying some member states need to be able to advance in European integration sounds all good and well, and I'm a pro-European. I want to do that. But the truth of the matter is that usually those countries who call for an hardcore, say, for instance, France, they are quite often the most reluctant actually to advance in true European integration. The French have been against trade. The French have been against a free movement of goods, services, labor and money. The French uh, have been against enlargement. They're very
0: keen on on socialising debt, though, which is something the Germans are not very keen on in in the euro area. Yeah, and uh, Alex, (laughs) should we, given that we've got this amazing list of yours, should we maybe think about some of the other areas? Because the second, so the euro crisis was the first thing that almost killed the European Union, but um, you seem to be happy with the institutional arrangements now. The second. Well, a second huge crisis was, um, uh, to do with, uh, with, with JHA, the, the whole question about borders and asylum. And there, as you say, there's already a lot of flexibility because you have Schengen, which only involves some of the member states. And we have the arrangements we were talking about. What do you think, um, um, is going to happen in that area? Do you think that? Um, there might be some enhanced cooperation around the idea of of, of border security and um, and of asylum. That's definitely something which many non governmental organisations um, have been calling for. Yeah,
1: I mean the idea sounds nice, but it's a little bit like with the euro. Uh, I think the alternative cost for that is simply too high. I mean, take an example. Uh, if you want burden sharing, would you want to forge ahead with burden sharing with the types of economies? Uh, that are weak and probably will need bailing out. Well, the answer to that is most probably no. And the same thing goes for justice and home affairs, for borders and for asylum. Now, I think burden sharing among all member states would be very important and a common European asylum policy. But if, you know, we have a leakage in one of the member states, which says that, listen, I'm not going to be part of this burden sharing, then the alternative cost is simply too high. And it is, would be wise for the European Union to 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 go in unison. So that's why I usually argue that you can try to use flexibility or enhanced cooperation a little bit as a threat. It's like qualified majority decision making. It's much easier to find a compromise when you know that you can be left in a minority. But unfortunately, obviously, that compromise is usually the lowest common denominator. So you cannot be... Uh, how would I say flexible with border controls, and it's equally difficult to be, I think, flexible in asylum policy. You have to do it together.
0: But at the same time, some countries are in Schengen, other countries are, are not in Schengen, so there is a kind of uh, external border for the Schengen area.
1: Yeah, but then again, you know that the key issue there is 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 the UK, which is out of Schengen, and then. Denmark has a very special arrangement with Schengen, basically where it signs on to any legislation or a key that comes from to Schengen by signing an international agreement. Uh, so in that sense, Schengen is, is, is not a problem um, in this particular issue. But, you know, when you come to concrete figures, when you come to people who will be allocated in country X, Y, or Z, or in the Eurozone, if you come to bailing out a country with a certain sums of money, that's when it gets a little bit more complicated. So that's why, you know, my argument in 2017 and as we move towards uh, the Rome uh, celebrations is that there's going to be a lot of language on uh, core Europe or enhanced cooperation or flexibility, but nothing very concrete uh, will come out of it.
0: But in the third area you talked about, which is the the, foreign, the area of foreign and defense policy, that is something where um, there has been yeah. Uh, yeah. a decision made to move forward. In fact, in fact, it's the first time that people are seriously talking about using enhanced cooperation, this idea that um, a group of member states can, can borrow the institutions of the European Union. Yeah,
1: no, you're right on that. And, and there the terminology, and I hope not all the listeners are getting confused here, is called structured cooperation. And that's basically the possibility for some member states to forge ahead in closer defense cooperation. I think it's a good idea as, as, as such, um, and especially for a country that you know is not a part of NATO. The more defense cooperation you have inside the European Union, the better off you are. But of course, now I think that if the American administration uh, continues uh, to basically, um, how would I say, not talk NATO down, but not to be as pro-NATO as usually American administrations are. I mean, I'm not talking about General Mattis or Defense Secretary Mattis here, but President Trump, then I think this will actually uh, increase the willingness of uh, EU countries to work more
0: uh, on defense together. And do you think that they'll do that within the institutions? I mean, some people have said that flexibility is easier if you are not constrained by the EU's institutions. One of my colleagues, for example, says that they think that permanent structured cooperation in defense is already happening, but it's happening um, within NATO as part of the framework nations concept, rather than within the European Union and with Germany playing a leading role in that. Yeah, definitely. I think you're right.
1: And, and you're also starting to see a lot of bilateral defense agreements i mean one example is is the one that has just been signed between the united kingdom sweden and finland called jeff okay it's crisis management but nevertheless so you'll probably see a much more of a patchwork flexibility being used in the defense side so you'll have some happening inside the eu institutional framework uh, some outside and some in nato so so it is not going to be happening in unison it'll be a little bit messy
0: And what kinds of things do you think might happen there? Um, Because this is obviously one of the huge um, unknowns for for European countries. You have both the the dangers of of terrorism and of of, um, instability coming up from the south. We have a lot of member states that are quite worried about Russian aggression. And you have the U.S. pulling out, as you were uh, describing earlier. And so this raised a whole series of questions of both, you know, about capabilities, about crisis responses, about intelligence sharing, about, um, uh, you know, how police forces can work together.
1: Yeah, I mean, and the answer to that is that those are all real issues that have to be dealt with. And remember that if we look at, for instance, NATO and even the European Union for many years post-Cold War, we were very focused on crisis management. You know, we actually put crisis management into the treaties, if I recall correctly, in Amsterdam in 1997. Uh, Yes, there has been talk about defense cooperation as such, but it's only now when the world feels a little bit more insecure, when Russia has shown uh, aggression first in Georgia 2008 and later on with the Crimean Peninsula and uh, East Ukraine, uh, that people are waking up to the fact that, listen, uh, are our defense capabilities um, up to par? Uh, do we exchange intelligence um, frequently enough? Do we know exactly what is going on? Are we capable of defending ourselves uh, if uh, something were to happen? Uh, that's one of the reasons, actually, that I think that as we're approaching Brexit, one of the key areas of cooperation between the European Union uh, and the United Kingdom will continue to be in the fields of uh, common foreign security policy and especially defence because I think the vested interests there are so big. Um, and I think if you were to ask, for instance, the British public where cooperation should continue, especially now in the Trump era, I would assume that one of the areas would be common foreign security policy
0: and defence. And how do you think that can happen? Because one of the interesting things about British Policy, Foreign policy in the last few years is how much has been done through the European Union. If you think about the big crises that uh, Britain's been trying to deal with, like the Iran nuclear program, that was something where Britain developed the policy with France and Germany and then within the EU, and it was based on European Union sanctions. When it comes to to dealing with Russia, Britain was one of the the most active countries in, in pushing sanctions within the European Union um and then also things like the you know the anti piracy mission off the the somali coast um a lot of these things arose out of cooperation and discussions within the foreign affairs council amongst ambassadors at co-repair which is the the weekly meeting of, of of eu ambassadors to eu that makes most of the decisions within the european union and and within the political and security committee which is the 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 ambassadors who deal with foreign policy issues do you think britain um will be able to play uh, an important role if it's, if it doesn't have a, a place in those institutions, or do you think that there might even be a way found for Britain to somehow take part in those discussions?
1: Well, it's difficult to say at this stage. That'll probably depend on, first of all, how the Brexit negotiations, based on Article 50, will go, and then subsequently, what the new relationship between the UK and the EU is going to be, what kind of an agreement uh, we end up getting. But I think you're right to point out that the British influence is uh, is important and and also a little bit, you know, up in the air right now. I mean, remember that Cathy Ashton was a Brit, the first uh, High Representative slash Foreign Minister of the European Union. I think actually did an extremely good job uh, you mentioned Iran she was key in forging a compromise and actually continued after as a special after her tasks were over as a f- high representative uh, as a special representative in forging that deal and and you know my argument was also always that you cannot have a common foreign security policy in the European Union without two countries and they were France and the United Kingdom and obviously now one is leaving so that's going to pose a problem. But I do think that, that common foreign security policy is going to be somewhere where, where, where you know, the door is always going to be ajar for the UK whenever possible.
0: But do you think it might even be possible to come up with some sort of institutional arrangement? Or do you think this is somewhere where you're just going to need to be very, very informal and it's going to be discussions in the fringes of the G7 and the G20 and NATO and in other kind of spaces?
1: Well, I think it would be silly on the part of the European Union to reject cooperation with the United Kingdom. I mean, bearing in mind that this is a nuclear power, uh, a country which is a permanent member of the UN uh, Security Council, uh, and which has had historically and continues to have a great impact in com- in, in, in foreign policy, in security policy, also in defence. Not to speak of, for instance, uh, sharing information on intelligence. So this is one of these win-win. Uh, I think, relationships um, for both the UK and the EU. So I would not exclude some kind of an arrangement, uh, formal even, uh, between the EU and the UK in this particular uh, field. I don't know what we can call it, uh, you know, an EEA on defence and foreign policy or something uh, of the like.
0: EEA, for for, but I suspect we probably don't have that many people still listening who are not, Ah, As geekish as we are, given that we've been going quite deep into the weeds. But that's the the European economic area, which is the the framework. Perhaps
1: we could have a European uh, defense area uh, where the UK or or, or common foreign security and defense area where the UK could cooperate uh, intimately.
0: One idea which the Russians always used to put forward when relations were not as complicated as they are now was the idea of having some sort of, European Security Council, or uh, they had this sort of idea that the Political and Security Committee, which is this, this meeting of, of uh, EU ambassadors that talks about foreign policy, should somehow um, also involve the Russians and Russian participation. Do you think something like that with the UK might be possible?
1: Uh, I would not talk of those two arrangements on the same day, uh, because one must remember that, that you know, the foundation of it all was um, in, 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 in the European security arrangements from Helsinki in 1974-1975 in the o- what later became the OSCE. Uh, and when the Cold War ended, uh, obviously, you know, Russia lost its status as a superpower and especially as a military superpower and it wanted to forge a new security agreement inside the OSCE. But obviously, that security agreement was, how would I put it diplomatically, very much skewed in the direction of um, Russian general uh, interests. So the the arrangement that the UK would have would certainly be different uh, from
0: what Russia would want. So your fourth area, maybe we'll just do that very quickly, because I suspect there's not going to be a huge amount of Enlargement in a traditional sense in the next period of uh, uh, of time, but how, but there is also a question, maybe of the opposite of enlargement, which we've really started talking about. Yes, yeah. with Britain leaving. I mean, how do you think that that um, this flexible Europe might work with these countries which have? Um, deep and important relationships with the European Union but are not going to be in it I mean Britain we started talking about but you have Turkey which has been in the sort of anti-chamber for European membership for the last 50 well more than 50 years now um, there are countries in the Balkans which um, still hope to join but probably aren't going to join anytime soon and then you have countries like Ukraine that are in the European security uh, space, um, even though the the idea that they'll be in the European Union seems uh, uh, at the very best a very long way off.
1: Yeah, I think perhaps we should look at the enlargement issue from a reverse perspective uh, and say that flexibility uh, will, I think, be quite useful um as an anti deterrent against the unraveling of the European Union, so if you have you know countries that are thinking about leaving uh such as I don't know Poland or or anyone else, uh you know perhaps the flexibility clauses will be helpful um equally if and when enlargement takes place because you know the processes are there, we have legal obligations I mean a lot of the Balkan states uh, are on track. If and when it takes place, uh, I would argue that flexibility is always useful. Uh, so it, it does work sort of in, in both ways, but the debate is just present, especially when enlargement takes place. And I would argue that, you know, if you look at the clauses on enhanced cooperation from, from the Amsterdam Treaty and the Nice Treaty, they were put there partially because people were afraid that you would not be able to advance European integration after enlargement. Now, obviously, history has proved that premise wrong because, you know, with the euro crisis, we probably deepened um, cooperation in the field of economic and monetary union more than we had uh, in previous years combined. So, uh, but enlargement is always there as, 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 a, as a sort of a backboard to flexibility.
0: So you think that, that the, the reluctant member states might be beneficiaries of this um, uh, flexibility. I mean, how do you stop because the one thing that you hear about endlessly, particularly in the context of the negotiations with Britain, is no cherry picking. People don't seem to like the Europe a la carte model very much, mm. certainly in Brussels. What's uh, How do you stop um, flexibility leading to a sort of unraveling of the of equi the communautaire, which has been kind of central to the creation of the single market and to the single currency?
1: Well, I mean, I think we should look at the examples where flexibility or a la carte have been used. At the end of the day, I still believe that there's a cert- certain determinism in the process of European integration. So if you integrate in one area, it leads to pressure to integrate uh, in another one. That's why you go from a free trade area to a customs union, from a customs union to an internal market, and from an internal market to a common currency.
0: So you're one Uh, of the last teleological Europeans who see this as a a big kind of one-way process.
1: Yeah, no, not necessarily. I mean, things can unravel as well. There's no question about that. I mean, someone has once done a study saying that international institutions have a, have a lifespan of average of about 70 years and obviously we'll be celebrating the 60th anniversary of the Rome Treaty. So I hope this is not an omen for, uh, you know, 2027. 20, uh, but the bottom line is that that when it is in the interest of member states to deepen integration, and I think as globalization forges ahead, as technology advances, as borders actually become less and less important practically, this will lead to more integration. And, and you know, even though EU legislation always has a very bad name, as a matter of fact, all it's about is to trying to put 28 pieces of different legislation uh, into one. And usually it's quite useful. I'm not saying that every law is good, but most of the laws that are there, whether they are about roaming or whether they're about traveling or whether they're about a common currency or whether they're about the rights that you have as a passenger whether they're about consumer rights, you know, they're actually quite okay. But the bottom line is that that the integration lasts for as long as the product, which is peace, prosperity, security and stability, uh,
0: keeps on churning results for its members, mainly the member states. So maybe I can ask you a last question. You were just talking about the, the EU in 2027. Can you give us a picture of, of what you think that looks like in the stub crystal ball? How many member states does it have is it much more flexible than it is at the moment uh, are there big new areas where Europeans have come together which we haven't thought about before are there areas where there are less members than there were than there are in 2017
1: well i think you know my 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 crystal ball would say that in 2027 we'll have over 30 member states in 2027 um you know we we will most probably uh, also have uh technological advancement uh, which has improved the quality of legislation in 2027 I think we'll probably have a much more tight-knit common European uh defense and I think we will have survived this sort of illiberal era where you see a lot of uh, anti-liberal Democrats anti-social market economies and anti-globalisation rhetoric. I I hope that we will have survived that era and Europe has been able to remain steadfast to its values. Uh, I do think that 2017 is an important year and it will probably define our 10 years to come.
0: Great. Well, thank you very much, Alex. That's been a fascinating discussion, not the sort of discussion which I could have had with many former prime ministers around Europe. (laughs) (laughs) My pleasure. Um, So we will put links up to some of the articles which Alex has written about Europe for the Financial Times and other areas on this uh, uh, on our website, which is www.ecfr.eu slash podcast. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please do share your enthusiasm for it with your friends on Facebook, on Twitter send us any comments you have my email is mark.leonard at ecfr.eu and please also give us a review and ranking on itunes because that helps spread the word about the podcast but for now from alexander stub and myself mark leonard it's goodbye the editor of ecfr's podcast is Bulin goymin and our researcher is Ulrike Franke.